Good morning. We'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 30. Philippians chapter 2, from verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Well, thank you, Joyce, and good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all uh, this morning. Now, today, in about uh, an hour and, and 20 minutes' time, the closing ceremony of the 2020 Olympic Games will take place. It's been an unprecedented Games. It's been a, a year late, it's been held mostly without spectators, yet it's still seen the very best athletes from every sport imaginable competing for the greatest of all sporting prizes, an Olympic gold medal. And across all these myriad of sports, from freestyle BMX to fencing, uh, I want to venture there is one thing, one thing that unites all of the athletes competing at these games. And it's not 
physical location uh, or Olympic spirit, but commitment. Complete and total commitment to their goal, that gold medal. Now, if you've watched much of the Olympics this year, you'll have heard all, all sorts of stories of commitment. And uniquely this year, um, we've, we've had stories of the ways people have trained for their events during lockdown, of swimming pools or pommel horses delivered to back gardens so progress didn't falter over the long, isolated months. And that's, that's going on top of all the stories you hear every four years, of the stories of foregone pleasures, of early mornings, of sacrificial parents, and all of the rest. The commitment of these athletes shapes every aspect of their lives, from what they eat, to how they sleep, to the hard work on the pitch and the gym, to the travelling from event to event, to all of their relationships, and so on and so forth. And these athletes are a good example of commitment. But the same is true for all of our commitments as well. Whatever you are truly committed to shapes your life. In fact, if you don't know what you are committed to, then take a look at your life and see what it tells you. The commitments we have become obvious to everyone around us until the point where people don't need to ask what you're committed to because it's obvious from the way that you look, speak and act what you are living for. Just watch somebody for a day and you'll see what their life is all about. In our passage today, we're going to be shown just what the life of a committed Christian will look like. And that might actually feel a little bit mundane, particularly if you were here last week. We're moving from the glorious heights of the exaltation of Jesus to the very highest place, to the very ordinary day-to-day life, of a Christian. I think we'll be surprised at where we end up. So do keep the passage open in front of you, Philippians chapter 2. Um, if you've got an outline, uh, you'll see that we're going to have two main points this morning, so please do follow along there if you find that helpful. And we'll begin with children of God. Now, having just shown us the full majesty of Jesus and the staggering humility of his mindset, that he would step down from heaven to rescue his people, Paul is now winding us right back to the main purpose of this section. And that is to encourage the Philippians to stand firm and keep going in the gospel, as we saw at the end of chapter 1. And he does so in these verses with a mixture of commands and truths, as he shows them what it means to be the children of God. And we're going to see three things particularly. We're going to see that they are to be obedient, distinctive, and lasting. And at each point, we're also going to see Paul use some quite striking language that's pulled directly from the Old Testament to help us understand the true nature of what it means to be children of God. So let's dive into this section together. Firstly, we see that the children of God are to be obedient. And we see that in the very first verse of our passage. Let me read that again for us. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul begins with this command to obey. As you've seen in Philippians, just notice again how Paul really cares for them. He calls them dear friends or beloved. Paul's care and affection for the Philippians is really evident 
as is the Philippians' own good standing. This is not okay, a harsh command to a wayward and straying church. This is an encouragement to a church that is doing well. They need to keep going to continue in obedience, continue in what they've already been doing. And the particular obedience they are to have is this obedience that works out their salvation. Now, these words might immediately strike us uh, as a, sounding a little bit odd. Not surprisingly, really. What does it mean to work out one's salvation? It can't be that their works bring about their salvation. It definitely doesn't mean that. Because Paul's already said that they are saved by God in chapter 1, verse 28. Yet we're getting a hint here that the way the Philippians conduct their lives really matters. They are to live lives that in some way are to work out their salvation. And the idea isn't that their work produces more or less salvation. The salvation itself is static. You're either saved or you're not. In the language of the GCSE science textbook, it's a discrete rather than continuous variable. Um, or to put it another way, it's not a dimmer switch where you can go from kind of an ambient, like, nice light to a noonday brightness. Um, it's, it's an on-off switch. You're either saved or you're not. And yet, there is this idea of, of working out, of making progress with salvation. Now, working out is language uh, we use fairly often in our world. We, we might, for example, work out to improve our fitness. And anyone who's ever suffered a workout knows that it is very much not an on-off switch, um, as much as we wish it might be. There's, there's effort, there's sweat, and there is very slow progress. So how can we put these two things together? Well, take a look at verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We work because God works. We have two workings here. We have our own work, which is linked to obedience and God's work. And then, and then we have got God's work, which sits behind and kind of within our work. What Paul is, is getting at here is that we work because God is already at work in us. He is at work to will us, to give us the desire to be obedient. And he is at work that causes us to take individual actions for his glory. He works to will and he works to act. You could read it a little bit like this. Uh, Live out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who energises you to obedience. The switch of God's salvation has been flipped, but the effect takes time to be seen. As Elias reminded us last week, our world praises selfish ambition and God calls us to selfless lives. That transformation takes time to come about in just the same way that you're a runner from day one of couch to 5K, but that might not be evident to everybody else yet until you've worked out. And it is only because of God's work that we can accomplish this. Yet, this work in our lives matters. And as the very work of God, we should approach this with fear and trembling. This is our first reference back to the Old Testament. Throughout God's dealings with his people, whenever God acts and speaks to his people, the immediate response is the same. It's fear and it's trembling. 
The work of God's mighty hand is awesome and terrifying. And throughout the Bible, people recognize that again and again. You could think of the greatest rescue of God's people in the Exodus. As, he, as God brought them out of slavery uh, and established them as his own people. At every point along the way of that journey, as God spoke to his people and performed his mighty acts, they were struck with fear and trembling. And it should be the same for us here. The work God has done in our salvation and continues to do in our obedience is the same work as he began when he established the people of Israel. It's the very same God. It's the very same salvation work. Our salvation is no trivial thing. We are caught up in the exaltation of Jesus to the highest place. And so we must treat our day-to-day obedience with the same reverent awe as we come face-to-face with the mighty work of God. It's not a, a kind of a paralyzing fear that's unable to do anything at all, but a deep recognition at the wonder of it all, that God would save me, a sinner and rebel, to be his child, that God would would actually direct my life and cause me to serve him. And more than that, not just to serve him kind of unwillingly, but to want to serve him. And then more than that, would use this obedience that he's causing to bring about my salvation in clearer and clearer focus. Now, that is an astounding thought. And that is true of the obedient children of God. And that obedience is going to have a profound and very present effect as the children of God live distinctive lives now in the world. And this is the second and a sub-point of this section. As we work out our salvation, we will become blameless, pure, and faultless. This life is to be utterly distinct from those around us. And Paul emphasises this as he describes both Christians and the world around them. He returns to this idea that the Philippians are to be pure and blameless. We saw this initially in chapter 1, that our discernment will lead to pure and blameless lives. We see this fleshed out here. It is God himself who's going to work in us, giving us the discernment to serve him. And this, in turn, will bring about lives that are pure. It's easy to skip past these descriptions, I think. But, but let's just pause for a moment there. The Philippians are to become pure, without any blemish, without any dirt, and then blameless, without anyone able to speak a word against them. This is the work that God is accomplishing in you if you are a Christian this morning. As you live an obedient life, working out your salvation, growing in discernment, God is working to make us his pure people. This purity is only enhanced when placed against the backdrop of a warped and crooked generation. Now, that isn't a particular description of Philippi um, or the generation at the time of the letter. Rather, it's, it's a broad description uh, of our world. The people around are, are warped and twisted out of shape, imperfect, not as they were made to be. But the emphasis here isn't on purity and blamelessness for its own sake, Incredible, incredible though that is. Uh, No, this purity is to shine into the darkness. And the Philippians are described as shining stars in the universe. 
stars shine. It's in their nature, and they couldn't stop it if they tried. And similarly, the Philippians are called to shine. They are called uh, to let their purity be seen by all around them, bursting forth into the darkness. And particularly, they are to hold out the word of life. It says that at the start of verse 16. And the phrase, hold out the word of life, could also be translated, hold onto the word of life. Translation doesn't really make any, any difference to the meaning. So it's the, it's the word of life, the truth, the truth and the good news that Jesus is king and God is saving his people. That's what's going to make the Philippians shine. And it's this news that they're to hold out to the world. Now, holding on to the word of life only causes them to shine more brightly, which in turn shows more clearly the distinction between them and the world, world around them, and then displays that word more fully. See, throughout the, the letter, Paul's chief concerns have been for the Philippians to stand firm in the gospel and to continue to speak it to others. And we've got both those things at the same time in view here. Their speaking the gospel and their standing firm cannot be separated as one is going to feed the other. As they hold on to the word of life and shine more brightly, they more easily hold it out to the world around them as they shine more distinctly. But there is a great danger that Paul warns them of in these verses. We've skipped over it, and you'll see it back in verse 14. Great danger facing the Philippians as they shine in the world is that they begin to complain or grumble and argue. Now, Paul calls them to do everything, do everything without this grumbling and arguing seeping in. This, in some ways, isn't very surprising. In the letter to the Philippians, we've seen them commended for their partnership. And we know how damaging a grumbling can be to a team, to teamwork, and how destructive arguing is in a group. And that's, that's true. But Paul is once again using language from the Old Testament to really underline his point. You see, the great danger that the Israelites fell into following the Exodus was that they grumbled. They had, with fear and trembling, uh, been rescued by the very work of God. Yet they grumbled and they wished that they were back in Egypt. This grumbling had terrible consequences for them as they wandered the desert for 40 years. And at the end of the books of the law, in one of the last chapters of Deuteronomy, the last book of the law, the people of Israel are described as a warped and crooked generation. Exactly the same language that Paul is using to describe the world here in Philippians. See, Paul is turning this language round, and Paul is talking about the Philippians being the true children of God and not being warped and crooked. They have been saved by God's powerful work, and they now serve him in obedience as the people of Israel were always supposed to do. And it's in that context that we need to read these words. Not only do they show us uh, the great danger that the Philippian church faced, they also show us more clearly the distinctive status that their obedience is going to bring. Where the Israelites grumbled and fell away, wandered, the Philippians are urged not to grumble, and so to be the truly pure and blameless children of God. He's showing us again that our lives do matter, that living out the light switch reality 
of our salvation is the life of the committed Christian. Now these verses are true for us today too. The greatest danger facing us as a church family, it's not out there in the world, it's not progressive sexual liberalism, it's not the gagging of free speech or any other danger that might spring to mind. It is grumbling and arguing. It's the attitude that looks over the fence at someone else and wants what they've got. Grumbling and arguing are born out of selfish ambition rather than the humility that thinks more of Jesus. They grow when we move away from the gospel. We forget the joy of it. We forget the wonder that God has saved us. And they will tear apart the partnership of the local church as each of us begins to look to our own interests. But the answer to this danger is is so clear, isn't it, in these verses? We need to return to the reality that Christ has won. Understand more clearly the great work that he has accomplished in making us children of God and hold on to the word of life, that great gospel of Jesus. And there's one final truth that we learn about the children of God in these verses, and that is that they are lasting. Take another look at the second half of verse 16 onwards and you will see, uh, see what I mean. <clears throat> it says, In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. We see here the end result for both the Philippians and for Paul. And these verses are quite complicated, so we'll we'll try and break them down together. Paul first states that he'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that his efforts weren't for nothing. And on first glance, this can seem a little bit odd. Uh, Why is Paul's goal that he can boast? Every week in Philippians, uh, we're seeing that our motivation should be the gospel spreading Paul said that's his motivation time and time again, yet he seems to be kind of changing things up here, and he's got an ambition that seems a little bit more kind of Paul-centred, his own boasting. I don't really think that's quite what's going on, um, so we need to keep reading. Paul then jumps into uh, a new metaphor of being poured out like a drink offering. He's again uh, describing his work, his labour, but in a very different, quite a visceral way. The language Here gives this sense of Paul being kind of emptied completely, little by little, without any stopping. His life is being used up for these Philippians. We actually use similar language to this uh, all the time. We might modernise it, uh, and we might talk about running on empty, or we might talk about needing to recharge. I think Paul would have thought about uh, recharging in the same way that we do. But the idea is the same. Our energy and our our labour is finite. There's only so much of it, and it's going to drain away slowly, And when it's all gone, we're left with nothing. And here, Paul is pouring his energy into the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Paul is just stacking the metaphors here. And at this point, we're coming to the third chunk of Old Testament context. We've been running all the way through this passage. So far, uh, Paul has pressed the Israelite experience onto the Philippians as we've reflected on the mighty work of God to save them and to establish their obedience, and then their their new standing as children of God who shine 
into a world that doesn't know him. And now we turn to the language of sacrifice and service. Sacrifice and service for the Israelite community was the work of the priests, those who serve God and the people, bringing sacrifices from the people to God. They're in the very heart of what it meant to be God's people. They were the connection between God and his people. And sadly, the story of Israel is one of of corrupt priests and lackluster service. Yet, the Philippians are described in these terms. And, And notice the origins of their sacrifice and service in the verse again. It says it's, it's their faith. They trust in the gospel, and now they live lives that are transformed by it. So this description of sacrifice and service coming from faith is just another description of the faithful, obedient life that Paul has said the Philippians already possess and need to hold on to. So with this idea in place, I think we can see two things. Paul's labour is to see the Philippians continue in obedience. That's the work he's describing in such striking terms in verse 17. He's using every ounce of himself in working to see this little church continuing to the day of Christ. And it's because this church is obedient, because it is is serving and and sacrificing and holding on to the word of life, because of that, it will last. This little church will last. The Philippians will last. And in the end... Paul will boast. It's not that Paul's kind of boasting in his own accomplishments. Um, We've read, read, haven't we, last week in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, we saw stunning glory that Jesus will have. We saw that's where all the glory is going to go. So it's not that he's kind of boasting in his own accomplishments. It's that he will rejoice that the Philippians have made it and that his his small efforts, that his being poured out was part of their story of lasting. Uh, to come back to where we began, it, it's a bit like the, the parent of the Olympic medalist telling everyone how their son or daughter has done it, how they are so proud of them, how uh, all those 4 a.m. pool sessions, every freezing Thursday night stood by the track, the countless hours on the road traveling, all of it worth it because they've finally done it. It's that kind of boasting. Only here, the glory isn't for the Philippians. It's all for God. Because, as we thought already, he is the one who works in them to bring about their obedience. And the end result is that everyone rejoices. The Philippians will rejoice because they've made it to the end. And Paul will rejoice because they have all made it to the end. As they bow down before the name of Jesus on the day of Christ. What a glorious future for the children of God. But that future isn't just going to happen. Paul is spending his life seeing that they make it. His desire for the gospel to go out and to spread, it doesn't stop at conversion. It's not enough for Paul to collect a big bucket of response slips or to kind of finish his talk with an altar call and, and that be the end of it. No, the, the, the progress of the gospel is much more than names on a sheet It's real people living obedient lives, distinct in the world, continuing with Jesus until the very end. I think there's a challenge for us as a church family. When Paul is talking about the spread of the gospel, he of course means that spread to all those places, all those people who've never heard it. But he also means the continuation 
of those who are already trusting in Jesus. And he's prepared to work just as hard to see the Philippians make it to the day of Christ as he is to see new people added to that number. And as a church family, we have the responsibility and the opportunity to help one another keep going, trusting in Jesus, just as Paul does for the Philippians. It's going to look uh, different for each of us, depending on our situation. It, it might mean just praying through the partnership directory on a regular basis. Or it might mean planning to ask someone the discussion question at the end of the outline on a Sunday morning and preparing to, to tell them something that's challenged or encouraged you. It, it will definitely mean thinking a little bit about how we can help somebody else to know this great gospel more and more. And it will bring us great and lasting joy on the day of Christ when we look around and see those we prayed for and those we've spoken to bowing before the name of Jesus. And that's what it's going to look like to be the committed, all-in children of God. But Paul isn't finished there. We are the children of God, and he wants us to know what it looks like to be people for Jesus. This is our second point. Having addressed the awesome work of God and the eternal destination of his people, Paul now draws the focus from the heights of Christ's victory to the travel plans of a couple of his team members. That feels like a little bit of a gear shift. I'm sure uh, these type um, of plans, this type of planning is quite familiar to us at the moment. Uh, It's the time of year when we take summer holidays, being summer and raining. Um, And uh, as a family, we're planning on visiting my sister to stay with her in Northern Ireland soon. Uh, So we've exchanged some WhatsApp messages about the trip. We've had some phone calls. Uh, We've uh, discussed um, when we're coming, which boat we're on. We've discussed the sleeping requirements of our children and all sorts of practicalities that will be needed uh, for the trip to be successful. These verses from 19 to 30 can feel a little bit like that, can't they? And as such, can easily be dismissed as kind of just being these kind of travel plans, this kind of organisational part of the letter. I mean, this is, this is the first century. Uh, letters are how you give news and how you communicate plans. And here we have the plans of Timothy and Epaphroditus. The discussion of these plans does include some kind of commendations of character. That's not unusual in letters from this time. The Philippians need to know this letter is trustworthy. And so you get commendations for the, basically for the postman. It's a bit like WhatsApp wants you to know that all your messages are end-to-end encrypted, whatever that means. Uh, and so they can be trusted. So too can Timothy and Epaphroditus. We'd be very tempted to leave it there um, with these verses from hundreds of years ago. But I think, I think there's much more going on here. For starters... These verses about Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're actually situated right in the middle of the letter to the Philippians. You just turn over a page, you'll see that um, in, our, in our church Bibles here, it crosses the middle line of these four pages. It's, it's smack bang in the middle. You can't, uh, you, you can't remove them from the body of the letter to the Philippians. The dis- discussion of travel plans and the commendation, they must be read in the context for everything that's come before. And with that in mind, I think these verses show us two brilliant examples of what it looks like to be all in for Jesus. That being said, 
We are going to uh, kind of deal with these um, a little bit more quickly uh, than we have done in the first chunk. And again, we're going to see three key things. Firstly, we're going to see that they are real. Secondly, that they are servant-hearted. And finally, that they are all in. So firstly, real. Timothy and Epaphroditus are real people. I mean, that might be uh, slightly obvious, but it's really emphasized in these verses, isn't it? And we see their real plans and the real jobs they must carry out. We see that they get really sick. And we see their real relationships. If ever we were reminded that the Bible is written by people in our world, two people in our world, it's here in these verses. And that's worth pausing on for a moment. So we've already thought we've come from those cosmic realities of the victory and the supremacy of Jesus, the eternal destinations, the faithful people of God, to the travel plans of two ordinary blokes who Paul loves and who love the Philippians. And that shift, that shift matters. We're seeing a glimpse into Paul's mind here. And in his mind, the travel and the work of these two men flows out of the great gospel realities that we've been seeing. The obedience of the gospel is won and lost in real lives. Now, I think it can often be tempting to to read the Bible and disassociate what's written from real life a little bit. We find it easier to sanitise the commands and the examples, to kind of trim them down um, and make them manageable. We might uh, reread the command to do everything without complaining and arguing and turn it into uh, do everything without causing too much of us think about it if we're not massively happy. And we allow ourselves a nice little bit of kind of self-indulgent grumbling. Uh, we probably never state it quite as boldly as that, but I think subconsciously this, this attitude is very present in my own heart. I need this reminder that the gospel applies to real people. These verses are rooted in reality and logistics. This person's been here, and they're now going there. Paul is showing us these exemplary men in the real world that they inhabit. See, the gospel is one in reality. Gospel progress happens with real people. So whatever your week will be like from Monday morning, you live in an arena where you can serve Jesus all in. Your real, ordinary, day-to-day life matters as you live as a child of God. That's both a privilege and a great challenge. It's a privilege because it, it elevates every area of our lives to an arena in which we can serve God. And it's also a challenge because it elevates every area of our lives into an arena in which we can serve God. But most of all, it shows us that our real lives matter and that our shining, distinctive obedience is something that will play out every day. And not only are they real, but they're also servant-hearted. Over the past three weeks, we've seen Paul's commands and encouragement to the Philippians that they stand firm in the gospel have the humility of Christ and continue in obedience. And this servant-hearted attitude is seen very clearly in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Take Timothy first, for example. Uh, Paul describes him as the very best of men, incomparable to all the others. His commendation of him is, is just glowing in verse 20. And yet, Timothy serves with Paul as a son with his father. Timothy has a humility that he'll be seen as the son, as lesser than Paul. 
If he's uh, just as great as Paul says he is, then he could go to his own place. He could establish his own ministry, write his own letters, be the next great Christian leader, thinker and author. But Timothy is servant-hearted. He serves with Paul. He's not serving for his own ends. He's not serving out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He's serving out of love to see the gospel of Christ preached. And Epaphroditus, he's described in verse 30 as risking his life for the work of Christ. He, like Paul, is prepared to be poured out for the good of others. Now let's be very clear. It's not that Epaphroditus is kind of seeking pain or sickness or suffering. No, he's, he's seeking the work of Christ. And if that comes with pain and suffering, that's okay. He'll gladly suffer so long as he's seeing that gospel continue. And the whole reason why Epaphroditus was with Paul in the first place is because of his servant-hearted attitude. He was there to help Paul on behalf of the rest of the Philippians. He's obviously gone from them to bring something to Paul. And we learn later that he was bringing a financial gift. But his help is much more than that, isn't it? It's clear he's provided a real comfort to, and, and real aid to Paul in these verses. And now he's returning so that he can continue to work for the gospel. And he is described uh, as both Paul's fellow worker and fellow soldier. Because it wasn't enough for him to be described in those kind of terms once. Uh, Paul repeats it for emphasis, showing us exactly what he's like. These two men are the embodiment of service. Just look at the way their care is described for the Philippians and others. Timothy takes a genuine interest in their welfare. And Epaphroditus, he, he longs for the Philippians and he's distressed for them. He's distressed because they are worried about him. Epaphroditus was, was genuinely ill and he's described as almost dying, but he's better. And his love and his care for the Philippians is such that he's no longer concerned about his own sickness. He's more concerned that the Philippians haven't heard that he's better yet. And they might be upset and sad and worried about that. So, so that's why he's desperate to see them. They are brilliant examples of the attitude that we saw last week. They are not acting out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. They are putting the needs and cares of the Philippians and others first. And that's because, finally, they are all in. They are all in for the gospel of Jesus. Striking in these verses about Timothy and Epaphroditus is their motive. They have a servant-hearted attitude, but that springs out of something deeper. And this is what we really need to see about these two men. Paul's shown us just how ordinary, how real they are. Uh, and that should leave us asking, how, how can they actually be so servant-hearted? How can these real men continually put others first? How is it they can actually really and genuinely care for the interest of others? It's not because um, they look out um, for, just for the interest of others, but it's, it's bigger than that. It's because they look out for the interests of Jesus Christ. That's how Timothy is described in verse 20, and Epaphroditus is described similarly in verse 30, as he almost dies for the work of Christ. See, it's not enough just to look for the interests of others. There must be a motivation that sits beneath that. That's an action. The motivation for these two men is because they are all in for Jesus. They get the gospel, and they love the gospel, and their love for the gospel drives everything that they do. Now, don't miss the surprise here. Timothy and Epaphroditus do, do really care 
about the Philippians, but they are driven by the interests of Christ. This is key to understanding the all-in life. This is the key to life as the children of God, the obedient, distinctive, lasting life that is displayed. In Timothy and Epaphroditus, it rests on knowing, loving, and believing the gospel. See, we, we, we know, don't we, that people let us down. And we know that we let others down. We know the cares and the concerns and the stresses of day-to-day life. We know every selfish ambition that so easily comes to us. We can always find a reason to grumble. We know how much easier it is to stop shining and to slip into the darkness. Which is why we need to come back to this key. It's why Paul shows us these two men at this point after this barrage of truth about Jesus' victory and the work of God. Real people can and do live lives all in for Jesus. But they can only do that when they come to know and understand the work God has done in making us his children. That is key. So uh, let's come to conclude together. What does it look like to be committed to Jesus? Well, it looks like Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's real and ordinary. It's played out in the day-to-day lives of countless people who trust in Jesus, putting others first because he is the king. It looks very different to the world around us. Lives are shaped by continued obedience to God's word, a distinctive community serving for each other's good, seeking the obedience of each other more and more. And it is joyful. Joyful because it is full of hope of the day of Christ that is coming. Does that describe you this morning? Does that describe us as a church family? I think and I hope the answer is yes. Sometimes. Yes, because I know that I see this attitude all around me. And sometimes, because I know my own heart. And sometimes the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, it it just feels a bit out of reach. And if that's you this morning, then I want you to be encouraged that we began by thinking this is something we need to work out. Our distinctive obedient lives matter, but we make progress in them. Our obedience grows as we know the gospel of Jesus more and more. That's the key to the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and it's the key that we need to keep returning to. So let's, let's commit to helping one another as a church family. Let's work out our salvation together, teaching each other more of the good news of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom, whatever our context, as we hold on to and hold out the word of life. And we'll have the joy of shining brighter and brighter now and standing together on the day of Christ to come. If this is your first uh, morning with us this morning, um, or, or if you're someone who's, who's still deciding whether you want to follow Christ yourself, then I, I hope you've seen what it looks like to live a life committed to Jesus. It's not an easy life. It's definitely a life that's going to look different. But it's lived trusting that Jesus brings life that lasts. And we'd love to tell you more about that. Uh, and Nathan will tell us some ways you can find out more and some things coming up uh, over the summer, as, as always, uh, in a moment. But the, the very best thing you could do this morning is you could ask someone, ask someone you meet, ask someone you know here at Moreland's, why they are committed to Jesus. Why are they committed to Jesus? Uh, find out what it is that's driving their life. 
Now, in a moment, uh, we're going to sing together. We're going to reflect on this truth. But before we do, let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've rescued us and made us your children. Thank you that Jesus gives us lasting hope of life in his kingdom for eternity. Please help us to hold on to and to hold out that word of life. Help us to live lives that are committed to the good news of Jesus and that help others to do the same. And please give us the joy of seeing many who we have worked alongside standing before the throne of Jesus on the day of Christ. Amen.